one of the things that interested me was that Strang's early appeal was because he claimed to be a prophet. He claimed to be a conduit to God. And in the early days, Brigham was less willing to do that. He was hesitant to say, I'm a prophet. And so uh, a lot of people got into the church because they wanted a prophet, it turns out. And Strang had other advantages. Nauvoo was falling and Brigham Young was saying, we're going to go west and we don't quite know where we're going. And it's not really on the map all that well. And there's a lot of dangers and we're going into winter. And um, for a lot of reasons, people were hesitant, scared, tired of persecution. And Strang is, you know, a couple hundred miles from uh, Nauvoo and saying, hey, come on up here. We've got a colony. It's all set. It's safe and sound. We're good. And a lot of people were like, okay, well, let's check this guy out. Ever since I sat down with Miles Harvey to talk about James Strang and his book, I have been just captivated by uh, everything that we talk about in this episode. Can't get it off of my mind. Miles is one of the nicest guys. If he writes another book, even if it's not adjacent to The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I might just have him back in again because I like him and I liked our conversation so much. I'm going to allow you the opportunity to like it. Jesus it's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and if we do this episode right, I think at the end you're just going to go, I had no idea about anything that was just talked about. If we do this right, that's a lot of pressure on you, Miles Harvey, and a lot of pressure on me. Uh, my guest for this episode, Miles Harvey, an author, an American journalist is what Wikipedia tells me, so we're going to get to know you a little bit before we dive into the great big question of, huh? that we'll get into the other parts of this episode. Miles, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Uh, what attracts you to uh, American history and to, and to writing books and all that you do? Um, I'm from Chicago, and I'm more or less a lifetime Midwesterner. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs of this city, and I teach at DePaul University. And I do consider myself a journalist, although I also teach what I teach at DePaul is creative writing. And I've always sort of walk the line between these two things. I think they're very overlapped. But what I teach is what's called creative nonfiction, which is not making up stuff, but using the story techniques of fiction to tell nonfiction stories. So that's what I do. And I've written, this is my third book on a big press. And the first one was about a map thief. And the second one was about uh, an explorer in the 16th century, actually a, an artist in the 16th century who came to Florida in a French colony that was wiped out. And that's just sort of made a sort of stake in my career writing what's called narrative history. I think there are so many great stories out there that if they're told, are told in sort of an academic way. And I like telling a good story. And people are hearing that and going, all right, Richie, what have you gotten us into? This is the cultural hall where we talk about things that are in or surrounding the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So what is it? Well, his third book, he mentioned what his first two were. His third book is called The King of Confidence, a tale of utopian dreamers, frontier schemers, true believers, false prophets, and the murder of an American monarch, which I, I tell you, if you're going to go a long title on a book, having dreamers, schemers, believers, false prophets, and murder. I mean, that's a way to go about making sure you get everyone teased in on the title of a book. We're talking about James Strang. And you may hear that and go, 
I don't know who that is. So Richie, where are you leading us down this this path? What what have you done here? It's a book that just came out earlier this week on the 14th of July, and and we're going to find out a little bit about James Strang. Uh, we're going to tell some stories about how he intersects with the the mainstream of the church and what happens at the death of Joseph Smith, etc., etc. I think we've set the table well enough. Um, where would you like to start? Maybe the the upbringing of of James Strang? Is that where we start? Sure, we could do that. We might just, to place him in context, say he was a big rival to Brigham Young after Smith was shot for control of the church. And at one time, there were possibilities serious enough, serious enough where people in the church took it seriously that he might be named governor of Utah to replace Brigham Young. So he was a real rival. In the end, his name was lost to history, and obviously Brigham Young's is not. But I, I think you, you have to go back to, to these things and look at how people at the time felt. And I, I think Young saw him as a threat. And so we could talk about where he got started. He got started in what was called the Burned Over District of New York, which many of your listeners will know about because it was the place that the church was born. Now, why um, is it called burned over? I've never heard that term for it before. Oh, it's such a wonderful term. It's called burned over because there were so many religious and cultural fires oh. that raged through there that it was just always, I mean, if you imagine a forest just being burned and then starting to bud again and being burned, I mean, many of the most important movements in American history, including the Mormon church, come out of central and western New York at that time, but it's also the hub of a fledgling feminist movement, of the abolition movement, of religious fervors of all kind from sort of, you know, more standard Protestant movements to uh, out there cults. And uh, it just was a, just a really exciting place. You know, it, the Erie Canal was built and that not only brought transportation and commerce to western New York, but all sorts of new and fresh ideas. So this guy Strang grew up in the burned over district and he was a Baptist by upbringing and very immersed in the Bible and the church. But he was secretly from the time he was a young man, an atheist that he also, so he wrote in his journal, I'm an atheist. And these, <laughs> these people, they don't know what they're talking about, but he also wrote about being really gifted at deceiving other people. He said, I'm really good at talking Bible with other people. And they're really taken by the way I can talk religion with them. But he remained an atheist until he went to Nauvoo in 1843. He had burned out as a lawyer, uh, as a newspaper man in, in New York. He had allegedly sold some land to somebody. Uh, the land was in Ohio and this person went down to Ohio and said, there's no land there. And so he was sort of run out of town. And like a lot of people, went to the frontier, started his life over. In 1843, he, uh, in, I guess 1844, he went to uh, Nauvoo and had a conversion experience. Now, the question is, was that real? Or did he just see a chance to make money as he'd seen at other times in his life. Do we know, um, I mean, where Nauvoo was much more sort of the, uh, uh, um, I mean, it rivaled Chicago in size of city in that, in that time, as, as at least the narrative that I've been told was, 
is that it was a fairly large city, lots of people gathering there. Do we know, did he, in addition to getting a fresh start kind of on life, is that why he headed to Nauvoo? Or was he found by missionaries and then sort of went, oh, this is where this church is. And then as he came was when the actual conversion occurred. Well, it's interesting. It's a little hard to tell where his interest in Mormonism, I mean, as you probably know, Richie, and as many of your listeners know, at that time, Mormonism was a hip, exciting. I'm not saying it's not now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying it had like this edgy cachet at that time. A lot of people were sort of turning on to it. And, you know, he, the people he lived with in a little town in southern Wisconsin, some of his best friends from New York were already Mormons. So maybe there was some persuasion there. What he later said, or what one of his wives later said, is that he was practicing law in Illinois and uh, happened to meet up with a friend. And uh, while he was he was living in Wisconsin, but practicing law in northern Illinois at this time. And the friend said, hey, let's go to Nauvoo. I want you to see it. And you're right, Richie. I mean, Nauvoo must have been just spectacular at that time. You know, just coming out of the prairie onto the uh, banks of the Mississippi. Here you have a, not you know, not only a, an impressive city that is arguably the largest one in the state, but it's got uh, quasi-autonomous governance, and it's just, you know, it's got this huge temple. I mean, it's just a really impressive place. And the big question with Strang uh, that I really don't know the answer to is whether he found the faith or whether he said, man, I want part of this action. Mm. Like, this looks good to me. I'd like to reinvent myself along the lines of, you know, um, the prophet Joseph Smith. I mean, as as Everyone listening to this knows Joseph Smith really transformed himself, you know, from this sort of down and out figure into the this founder of an amazing church. And, you know, I just don't know whether Strang was a believer or not. It is interesting to note, though, that, uh, you know, that it, that we are talking the early months of 1844 and that James Strang himself was baptized by the prophet Joseph. That uh, he was actually baptized by Hiram, I think. Oh, okay, but, okay. But yeah, but he but he met Joseph, and according to him, he later told a reporter that they, you know, they had some back and forth, some arguments, and that he was convinced. It's really hard to tell what their relationship was, if if anything. Lots of people were making pilgrimages to Nauvoo at that point. People were coming from as far away as England and Mass, but they were also just kind of church tourists who wanted to see what this phenomenon was and wanted to meet Smith and wanted to be just to check it out. And I don't know where Strang fit into that, but his conversion came just a few months before Smith's murder. And shortly after that, much to the surprise <laughs> of the leadership of the church, this guy living in this little town of Burlington, Wisconsin, starts claiming that he has a letter from the prophet basically handing the church over to him. Now, as I as I understand it, though, shortly after his conversion, he was called to serve a mission, to go out and, and to be serving a mission. Is that not accurate? Well, I think what what Strang would say is that his mission was to run the run the church. It's it's he once he got this letter, he walked hundreds of miles and started um, going to church conferences and initially was just met with, you know, cynicism. You know, I, I mean, it's hard to even say it's like you know, the member of, you know, a member of the Salt Lake City Council suddenly saying, well, 
actually, I I have a letter here saying I'm secretly the president of the United States. Right. You know, <laughs> uh, and um, so this letter was very clever. Strang had been a postmaster, among other things. Um, some modern experts believe it's a forgery, um, but it was very interesting, good, not, not completely good forgery, but it was a, it was an interesting forgery. There was some stuff that was very sophisticated about it. And then Strang later um, realized, well, man, this forged letter is not going to be enough if it was forged. I mean, if you're there, Strang still has followers and we can talk about that. But if you believe he was a prophet of God, I guess you'd believe it wasn't forged. But then he made up or he either had a revelation on the day of Joseph Smith's death in which uh, in which an angel came to him and sort of anointed him the head of the church. And then later, sort of following Smith's narrative, he dug up some plates in Burlington, Wisconsin, that also were in a language that no one could read but him. And he translated them. And of course, those plates indicated that he was the heir to the church. And so let's just uh, put push pause there real quick. And let's just talk back through a couple of things that you just said, because I know that you're very familiar with this. But for people that are, you know, listening to the cultural hall and they're like, oh, you know, I thought this might be a news episode where we talked about news from the church today. I had no idea what we were going to be listening to. Let's just pick up a few things. So it's a guy who from New York, but then to Wisconsin came to Nauvoo was baptized by the prophet's brother, likely, you know, in some way sort of called out to to uh, to teach the gospel to people, as many people were in the early times of the church, claims to have a letter postmarked, I think it's nine days, is that right? Eight or nine days? Right. Nine days before right. um, the prophet Joseph's martyrdom that is postmarked that says, and I want to get into that, if you have the actual text of the of the letter, or we can kind of track that down, that says, hey, I, I'm turning the church over to him. And then he also prophesies of angelic visits as well as translation of other plates. So I, I just want to make sure that everyone is catching all, all that, this, that this story is. Well, and the interesting thing was it, it sort of went beyond that. For a short while, the prophet's brother, William, Strang started a utopian colony in, in, he called it Voree. Now we call it, well, it's called Burlington, Wisconsin. Then he called his colony Voree. William Smith actually lived in that colony for a short time. And the prophet's mother, Lucy, also, at least in a letter, claimed that she supported Strang as a rightful heir to the church. As and, you know, and, and a few were, others too, right? A, a Whitmer or two. Right, right. And Reuben Miller, who later became, uh, you know, an important member of the church uh, in Utah and was, and was before in, in Nauvoo. Uh, he was a really a true believer, but then he turned on Strang. And a lot, of the, a lot of the people who really fell for Strang, he was a great speaker, apparently. Reuben Miller and he got into a debate, and Reuben Miller said, I'm licked. Mm. This guy knows more about this stuff than me. He went back to Brigham and said, you know, I'm, I'm joining Strang's church. And Young, you know, later wrote, that, I, I think this guy has gone insane, you know, so, something to that effect. I can't remember his exact phrase, but he's just lost. And uh, this guy had an incredibly powerful effect on him. Strang was also brilliant at manipulating the media, and we can talk about that. But he was really able to project himself forward nationally through newspapers, and he got a lot of adherence. He also had the good luck of rising 
uh, and making his claim on the church at a time when the people in Nauvoo and Brigham Young were having very bad luck indeed with uh, the fall of Nauvoo from anti-Mormon rioters backed by uh, the government. And just to insert some sort of church history, just because I think that sometimes we get lost in the narrative, is we have the martyrdom of the prophet Joseph in, I want to say, June of 1844, the latter part of June. In fact, I think we just fairly recently celebrated the, the anniversary of that. He's martyred. And then I think in most people's minds, because this is how it happens today, we sort of know who the next prophet is going to be because, you know, it's the it's the president of the of the Quorum of the Twelve, and that's how it follows suit and sort of goes. But at the time, there was a considerable amount of time from the death in the martyrdom of the prophet Joseph Smith and the appointment and calling of Brigham Young, where a lot of stuff happened. Right. And a lot of people made their case. Sidney Rigdon and others made their case. And little, I, I, I said to you when we were off the air, I'm not a church historian, but, but I, I do know this period a little bit. And one of the things that interested me was that Strang's early appeal was because he claimed to be a prophet. He claimed to be a conduit to God. And in the early days, Brigham was less willing to do that. He was hesitant to say, I'm a prophet. And so uh, a lot of people got into the church because they wanted a prophet, it turns out. Yeah. And Strang had other advantages. Nauvoo was falling and Brigham Young was saying, we're going to go west and we don't quite know where we're going. And it's not really on the map all that well. And there's a lot of dangers and we're going into winter. And um, for a lot of reasons, people were hesitant, scared tired of persecution and Strang is you know a couple hundred miles from uh, Nauvoo and saying hey come on up here we've got a colony it's all set it's safe and sound we're good and a lot of people were like okay well let's check this guy out and so you know as you say in retrospect it sounds like this totally weird story but at the time uh, you know people weren't completely convinced that Brigham Young was the obvious choice to lead the church. And Strang was very persuasive. Well, and, and to those that had the reverence and uh, respect to Joseph Smith, the fact that Strang says, hey, I've got this letter and it was postmarked before. And to see some of those iconic figures from that time, you know, Joseph Smith's own mother, his, you know, his own brother to go along with Strang. I think that that sort of indicated for a lot of people, hey, this like they knew Joseph, and and if they're going here, then yeah, you bet we'll, we'll follow we'll follow suit. And it's not that outlandish when you consider that Joseph Smith, you know, taught of being visited by angels and being called to be a prophet for someone else to say, "Hey, this is what's happening for me." Yeah, and I want to be clear: I'm not injecting any opinion about whether Strang had as good a prophetic claim sure. as, as Brigham Young. I'm just reporting what he said and right. why people were drawn to him and. When people got to his little colony in Burlington, uh, Wisconsin, a lot of the people, Reuben Miller kind of famously did a 180 and said, wait, this guy's a fraud. And some of them, you know, tried to, <laughs> ended up leaving. It, Miller stayed a while and made Strang's life hell. And Strang eventually decided that he needed to move the colony. But by that time, he had attracted some of the real characters, shall we say, from the church. John C. Bennett, who was very uh, close 
to Smith at one point, but then who had been kicked out of the church, who was introduced some of the Masonic symbols to the church, but and but and also was practicing polygamy, but in a very kind of uncouth way hmm. at that time in Nauvoo. And Smith finally had enough of him. Strang was more than willing to welcome him uh, for a short while. Bennett was a brilliant guy, uh, incredibly persuasive. Uh, con man figure, but also just fascinating and intelligent. He had headed up the Nauvoo militia. It, he w- and he had most notably helped get through the Nauvoo Charter of 1840, which gave that city a sort of semi-autonomous quality of governance. And so he was, you know, here's a guy who says to Strang, hey, hey, let's kind of start up a new, essentially Bennett proposed a new country in a way. Mm-hmm. And Strang was like, sure. Uh, and but then Strang and Bennett had a falling out, and then there was a uh, this guy George J. Adams, who was also um, a prominent figure. Uh, 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 he was one of the twelve, I think, for a while in Nauvoo. Uh, he had had a big falling out with Young, and he was he was an amazing figure. He was uh, he toured the country doing. Uh, uh, he was a <laughs> an actor and a really persuasive preacher and apparently a really bad actor. Hmm. And he would tour the country doing uh, Shakespeare on one night and uh, preaching the gospel of James J. Strang the next day. But he was very successful at bringing people into the church. And so you had this, this wild situation where Strang was drawing all these people out to the frontier, first to Wisconsin, and then later when he said, I've had enough infighting in Wisconsin. I, I need to go someplace where I can just have more control over people, I think. And he uh, and Bennett hatched this scheme to move to Beaver Island, which is an island in the northernmost part of Lake Michigan. It's quite a large island. It's about, I think, about 13 miles long and about seven miles wide. Um, it was then barely inhabited by Native Americans who, who quickly moved off the island and, and some fishermen. But that's where things got really weird in the Strang story. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll pick it up right as we get to Beaver Island as we talk with Miles Harvey, uh, author of King of Confidence. We'll come back, pick that up in the second block of the Cultural Hall. Hey, it's me, Richie T., and I want to talk to you about uh, Kimura Tours. Won't you join me on a church history tour? I would love to be your travel companion. Technically, it will be my wife, but you could be on the bus with us. This is part of our 2021. Yes, we're already talking about something like that uh, for next summer. It was uh, supposed to be this summer. In fact, it was supposed to be like a couple weeks from now. It's not. It has been postponed into 2021 so that church sites will be open. We'll be able to see the Hill Kimura in its final pageantry year and also be able to see Nauvoo as well. Would love for you to come with us. These seats are filling up fast, so please do not put it off. Uh, make sure you go to KimuraTours.org. Kimura, just like it sounds, or like the hill which we talk about in the church. Tours, just like it sounds, uh, only T-O-U-R-S. It's not tours, like we say here in Utah anyway. Uh, KimuraTours.org. Join us uh, and make sure you look for the Cultural Hall banner. We're going, of course, with the folks from Leading Saints, Kurt and the kids. Uh, They'll be along with us as well, so make sure that you click on that tour, that you go on those dates. Uh, That way we can all be on the bus together. The website is KimuraTours.org. 
Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, I ask you this question. What other show brings you interviews like this one? And the answer is there is not one. The way that we're able to do this is by you becoming a Patreon subscriber. I would love for you to become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall. You go to Patreon.com slash the cultural hall and you make a pledge it pays for uh, great things like the computer and the software that we're able to connect uh, with people like miles harvey and that we're able to share these episodes with you as low as three dollars a month it's like netflix for your ears won't you please go to patreon.com slash the cultural hall and don't forget that if you do that yeah you're going to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group that only the Patreon subscribers get to be a part of. Miles, uh, as we talk about um, James Strang in the in the break, we sort of mentioned that that there are several things that we have not talked about. Certainly within the confines of the time we've got, there will be much more that people will need to read from your book. But you mentioned a couple things I want to make sure we pick up. Well, right around 1849 is where his story gets really uh, strange and exciting uh, in the fall of 1849, he toured the East Coast to recruit people and money, accompanied by a young man who he introduced as his nephew, Charles J. Douglas. In fact, this person was his first plural wife, a young woman by the name of Elvira Field in drag. She was, uh, there's a photograph of her in a suit mm-hmm. and the interesting thing about that was, you know, gender roles in the mid-19th century. Uh, Strang and uh, Elvira didn't fool everyone, but they did fool many people. And uh, But eventually, uh, after they got done with their tour... What was uh, what was the appeal of the tour? It was, it was him and his nephew, and was it a, a, a dramatic that, reading? Was it a vaudevillian-type show? Like, what was, what uh, was oh, the Oh, no, well, you know, she was just sort of... His private secretary is how he introduced her. And in fact, she did many things that, you know, a women wouldn't have been able to do in the church. She, she wrote for his newspaper. She, she did various church rites. She was quite an amazing figure, this young woman, Elvira Field. And what Strang was doing was just raising money and touring. He had a big following in the East and people were thinking about moving to Beaver Island to join him. He, this was when the kingdom of... James J. Strang really gets started. He gets back from the East and he moves to the island full-time himself. By that time, he's got quite a following there and uh, more people coming all the time. And in July of 1850, he has a formal ceremony where he is crowned king of earth and heaven. And his throne is stuffed with moss and is garments are either uh, stage props uh, by this guy Adams I mentioned in the last part of the show mm-hmm. uh, or uh, sewed by church ladies uh, and but it's quite a serious thing um, and there's been some debate about whether this was just a symbolic thing but let's put it this way um, the US government 
uh, took it seriously enough that there was sort of an independent kingdom all of a sudden on U.S. soil that Millard Fillmore, the president of the United States, sent in the first iron-hulled warship of the U.S. Navy to invade the island and bring Strang back to justice. And they did that in, I think, the spring of 18, uh, yeah, the spring of 1851. Strang was in hiding by then, uh, but he surrendered and uh, asked a lot of his followers to surrender. And it looked like the kingdom was over. But Strang was a lawyer and he apparently hired good lawyers, but his, his speech to the court was quite good. And the prosecutor made some really boneheaded mistakes. And Strang was found not guilty. And a huge array after that of federal charges were just dropped. And, you know, I'm just struck that Miller Fillmore, you know, was not the greatest president we've ever had. <laughs> but he left off as kind of not in a he wasn't asked even by his own party to run for reelection. Uh, so he left office in, I think, 1853. And Strang is still in power as king. So he, here's a king who outlasts a U.S. president. Um <laughs> In American history. Um, the the uh, kicker for me, I was hoping as you were like, well, then Millard Fillmore went out to Beaver Island. and He's like, well, if you can't beat him, join him. But that's that unfortunately isn't what happened. Well, <laughs> interestingly enough, the guy who prosecuted the case was one of the many bigger than life figures in the King of Confidence. It's a guy by the name of George Bates, who spent most of the trial trying to prove that Mormonism was a bad thing. And that's kind of why he lost the case. But in one of the many ironic twists of this story, Bates ended up his career working for the church in Utah as a lawyer for the church. <laughs> and that being the Brighamite church. That's right. Yeah. And I, you know, when I tell people about this story, I tend to use a phrase, I'm not making this up. You know? <laughs> um, but Things just got wilder after that. I mean, one of the interesting things about Strang was that he got elected to the Michigan state legislature. Um, and he did it not in the most, uh, shall we say, honest of ways. And there was kind of a race to try to have him arrested before he got to the state capital of Lansing. Anytime he left the island, people kind of tried to have him arrested, but he kind of outsmarted his persecutors. And then kind of a miraculous thing happened. Even some of the worst critics um, suddenly started saying, you know, this guy's actually a really smart, good lawmaker. So one of the things I love about Strang is just how complex the dude was. Yeah. I mean, he was just an amazingly complex, intelligent human being, maybe not a good human being, or at least willing to exploit others faith in him and, and maybe in the, in, in his church, but he was hugely intelligent, hugely well-read and intellectually curious. It's one of the things I admire about him. He was also surprising, you know, as your listeners know, you know, one of Brigham's strengths was not his attitude towards African-Americans, but Strang was, um, I think the one true thing about Strang, I, I think this guy talked out of both sides of his mouth about almost everything but abolition. He was a true, he, uh, in 1849, uh, hundred, some 120 years before the Brighamite Church, he ordained uh, an African-American man a, a, into the church. But he also, when he got to the legislature, fought hard for the rights of African-Americans. And it's just another 
fascinating thing about this weird story. I mean, I, I, I don't think Strang had true beliefs on almost anything. I mean, one example would be polygamy, right? Mm -hmm. He campaigned against polygamy when he was first claiming to be prophet. And that's what drew a fair amount of people to his branch of the church at that time. They had had disagreements with Joseph Smith and the polygamy that existed within yeah, the mainstream it, of the church and said, hey, here's a guy who says he's the follower or, you know, the appointee by Joseph Smith. And he's saying that polygamy is not the thing that I'm sure appealed to, uh, to a lot of people. Yeah. And, you know, as, as you know, polygamy was sort of an open secret in Nauvoo. It was not officially acknowledged by the church, but it was practiced by many of the leaders, including uh, the prophet himself and, and Brigham. Strang came in and said, no, 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 none of that. We are the, uh, he said, I, you know, I just, this is a rock bottom belief with me. I will never change on it. Well, uh, as Elvira Field, his uh, personal secretary who traveled with him, he was already married at that time. And he was, one of the reasons Elvira Field apparently went around the country in men's clothing is that Strang didn't want his first wife to know about her. Did she eventually um, accept uh, that second wife and there and there were multiples beyond that. Yeah, I, I think there's a real question. He eventually had uh, five wives, four of them polygamous wives. I, I think there's a real question about how much his first wife accepted his polygamy um, or accepted him. There, it's not even clear she believed in his brand of the church. She eventually left the island and went back to this little town in Wisconsin and lived there separately from Strang. Although, um, although never divorced, it was terminated and, at the point that he died. Yeah, and, he, and, and she was in contact with him. I mean, I, you know, I think it was a situation where, I mean, the situation for women who did get divorced in the 19th century, no matter what church they were in, was terrible and mm -hmm. bleak. And so do you mean terrible and bleak from like a um, from like a godly perspective or terrible and bleak, like from a, a rights and or abilities uh, within social structure? Great question. I'm not a theologist. And so I will leave the godly, although though people would have said that. But but no, they were basically owned by their husbands hmm. uh, with some exceptions and their property was owned by their husbands. Um she would have really lost a lot and she had their children with her. Mm -hmm. And I think for him, it was a face saving thing. You know, he, he could say, you know, there was this whole thing about runaway wives and, and, and sort of a, already a, a, a emerging mythology about, you know, women who had to flee the church, you know, because of the polygamy. And he just said, you know, my wife's not a runaway wife. She's running my property in, in Wisconsin. We're, we're fine. I just needed, you know, somebody I'm close with down there to overlook uh, what's left of my utopian colony in Wisconsin. And so that worked out okay for him. Um, and he eventually wound up back there. But the reason he wound up back there is because he made enough enemies in the church that, and outside the church, that by... 1856, there was a murder plot uh, really brewing. Um, and um, one of the reasons was polygamy, which was never particularly popular on the island. And as in Nauvoo, you know, it was practiced more by the leadership and by Strang. And that <laughs> there were many other complaints. But one of the biggest complaints, um, and again, it's one of those, I'm really not joking about this moment, is that Strang ordered all women on the island to wear pantaloons, <laughs> um, which are 
uh, basically pajama pants. Now, today we would, you see pictures of women in pantaloons in the 1850s and you don't say, oh, that's shocking. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Partly because they were still wearing dresses over these pantaloons. The dresses came up higher, but at the time it was shocking. It was like ordering your entire colony to wear bikinis or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, you know, as we know, you know, these pantaloons uh, later became associated with the burgeoning feminist movement. So we call them bloomers today because Amelia Bloomer, one of the great early women's rights fighters, famously started wearing them. And it was shocking to the nation. But people were wearing them on, women were wearing them on Strang's Island almost a year before Amelia Bloomer became famous for wearing these. He was just a pioneer, that's all. He was just... Well, I think there was that. I mean, I think there were ways he was progressive in, in, in ways that maybe wouldn't, we wouldn't call feminist. But I think at the time, I think, he, you know, there were, there were some things about him. But I think he also wanted control over the island. I think the more he lost... Uh, control over the island, the more we know today, you know, that in certain cults, the cult leader demands people to wear uniforms and to do things in a uniform way. Mm-hmm. And I think there was that with him. There was a, a power thing. And the more people said, no, nah, I'm not wearing those or my wife is not wearing your stupid pantaloons. The more he said, no, you're wearing them. Mm. And so this and a myriad other complaints led to his this assassination plot and of course by then he had really made many enemies not only in the immediate vicinity with the local fishermen but all over the great lakes because he was basically running a pirate colony out of beaver island one of the things my my book does is more than previous books establishes not that there were just rumors of these crimes we know there was a lot of anti-mormon bias which is what strang would always claim when people said you're sending out horse thieves you're sending out uh ships to raid coastal towns he would always say this is all fake news anti-mormon bias and of of course there was tremendous anti-mormon bias they were incredibly persecuted people in that part of the world but i found much more solid evidence not just rumors of raids taking place, but actual trials, actual sentences. And so Strang didn't have a lot of friends when he was finally shot by a couple of his own followers in 1856. And we will pick that up as we make our way into the third block of the Cultural Hall. Hey, this is Dan, the Laptop Man from PC Laptops. I know we're going through a lot right now. Many states are quarantining people to their homes so that they have to work remotely. One of the things that's really important is to have a computer that's functioning correctly. One with a good webcam, one that's fast so you can be productive, one that has a good quality screen because you're going to be on this all day remotely. Computer supply has been strained because manufacturing has almost stopped. At PC Laptops, we've secured a limited quantity of laptop and desktop computers that are backed with a lifetime service guarantee. They're available for you right now in limited quantity. The great thing about PC Laptops is this. Once you buy your new computer, if you have any problems or questions, we're here to take care of you. Also, to make it really easy right now, we've arranged with some banks to offer 12-month special financing. Get into PC Laptops right now, because at PC Laptops, we're here for you, and we're in this together. PCLaptops.com. 
Here in the third block of the cultural hall, are you having as much fun as I am as we talk about James Strang? Finding out about this person that you may or may not have known anything about uh, and how he relates to early church history. A huge thanks to Miles Harvey. And if you like this episode, take a second and leave a review wherever you're getting uh, this episode of the Cultural Hall. It just takes a second. Uh, go ahead and leave those five stars and say, I found Miles Harvey to be so fascinating. Thank you so much for bringing this kind of stuff to light. If you want to share a one-star review, just keep that to yourself. There is enough negative stuff on the internet that we don't need that. You don't need to post something like that, but we would love to hear your reviews. Or you can always send us an email, contact at theculturalhall.com. Miles, we have talked about pirates. We have talked about assassinations, and we'll get to that in this third block of the Cultural Hall. But I want to pick up a couple things um, that I was sort of fascinated to learn about and that maybe you can shed some more light on. Uh, the angelic visits to uh, James Strang. Do, are, are they, is this a, a revisitation of the angel Moroni that visited Joseph Smith, or who is this angel that comes to James Strang? Well, one of the interesting about, thing about Strang is he, he wasn't... Uh, he was a very good writer, and but he wasn't um, as detail-oriented as he might have been. So I don't think he named that first angel who came to him. He later uh, said another angel came to him to show him where the plates were in Burlington, Wisconsin. I'm not sure he named that angel either. I don't think so. And for, for instance, for Reuben Miller, um, who I mentioned earlier, who was a early and important adherent of Strang and later just totally turned against him. The issue was these angelic visits. Mm. Miller first started noticing that Strang told different stories when he described these visits and kind of said, you know, um, and Miller was a true believer and said, you know, that's not right. You know, either it like if, if this is a divine intervention in this man's life he's going to get the details right you know mm -hmm. it's going to be the same time every time he tells a story you don't like kind of remember an angel visiting you and so that was something that that got strang into trouble but he didn't you know he I, he just didn't worry uh about details uh i mean on the other hand he was <laughs> amazingly farsighted in other words in, in other ways you know he, he came up with his own sort of book of a prophecy and and whatnot it the it, he called it the book of the law of the lord and he he revised it at one point and, and this stuff had some amazing sort of you know it's just this sort of outline of how to govern an independent kingdom but also stuff like um beaver island's big export was lumber because the steamships stopped there and they were they burned lumber lumber was also crucial to the settling of the prairies so it was called green gold by one historian i read hmm. And Strang was in, in this book of the law of the Lord. There's this divine doctrine that if you cut trees down, you regrow them. And it reads like something more out of 2020 than 1856, I got to say. <laughs> interesting. Um, yeah, he was a really interesting, you know, another thing about him with she was a naturalist. He, he was published in the Smithsonian's annual publication, along with very, you know, a number of prestigious scientists of the time writing about mostly fish in Lake Michigan, but kind of a scientific paper. He also took part in what we'd now call crowdsourcing, this thing the Smithsonian, this new institute did to try to figure out how the weather worked. People didn't understand how weather systems would work. So Strang and hundreds of other people would go out and record the weather on a daily basis for the hmm. Smithsonian and then send their reports back. And that's one of the things that this Elvira, the, the woman who had, had traveled as a man, she sort of assumed this kind of, I don't want to say 
non-gender role, but she she in this family that he built with his wives sort of took on these roles. So she was the one who went out each day and recorded the weather. And she, she was just a really, uh, another really fascinating person. I think they were compatible in many ways. I think that was a passionate relationship, but I also think they were both had really keen minds. I also found it interesting that the book, which uh, James Stang String translated from, that he made it available for people to be able to see. And then it subsequently disappeared around the 1900s that people weren't able to then see it again. Is that correct? Well, you can still see it. I mean, I, there's he published one version, which I, I mean, I, I went uh, to the Newberry Library here in Chicago it was really exciting to touch it. And it was by you. It, it had originally belonged to one of his followers who I knew the name. So to see that on the book, that that way you have of when you touch something that meant so much to people in the past. Uh-huh. He had another volume, an updated volume with a lot of new stuff in it, including a kind of more hardcore embrace of, of polygamy, you know, sort of not not messing around like okay i'm into or we should practice polygamy that would had been printed and but what it it was not published at the time of his murder and and so that survived because people shipped it off the island possibly with him after he was shot uh he was paralyzed wait 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 you're 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 spoiling all the end of this thing come on miles come on we'll get there ahead of myself we'll get there we'll get there i know listen And, yeah. and and always with the caveat of you're not going to believe this or you can't make this stuff up. But as I understand it, and, and uh, maybe I'm not being clear or maybe I misunderstood, but the actual plates, there were witnesses to the plates that yes. Strang uh, translated from and he made them available for people to be able to yes. Yes. see, have uh, told. The, and the, the, the Raja Manchu plates and, and uh, yes, uh, he did make them available, and I think they they are missing. Although there are in the book, I publish a sketch of one of them. You know, people. Well, I think Strang published in his promotional material. You know, so they so we know what they look like. Right. But yeah, and and you know, one of his close associates at the time, later, many years later, uh, or at least no, someone who was close with him said that one of his closest friends said later that those were pounded out of a brass kettle. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it's, but it's hard to know, you know, I mean, I, I, it's, it's hard to know, but yeah, I think those have, have gone missing and, you know, he was a contradictory guy, but, a, but a really interesting guy. I'll say that. Right. Right. And we, and we aren't even, I mean, we're sort of jumping around to all these different parts and pieces. I mean, it, it is, it is a literally almost unbelievable story. So now I'll let you, you've been. You've been chomping at the bit of his demise, his downfall, his murder. So let's let's talk about how the world loses James Strang. Well, it's a plot uh, on the island of some disaffected people. Almost assuredly, they had help from the Michigan state government and probably from the federal government. One of the interesting things was that the ship that had invaded the island happened to make a stop on the island. And by that time, Strang was fairly friendly with the captains and whatnot, uh, or the captain and whatnot, on the island the day of his murder. And that was how he was brought out into the open. The captain sent a messenger and said, hey, I'd like to talk to you down by the pier. And waiting down by the pier were two of his followers with guns. And um, Strang makes this last procession 
he apparently, there's contradictory stories, but he apparently knew things weren't good when he, they asked him to come down there. I'm not sure he knew he was doomed, but they opened fire on him. And even when he was down, shot him some more and then ran onto the boat, which quickly kind of left with, so these guys had federal protection. Um, and they, no one was ever convicted. They were fined some, you know, $25. I can't remember what it was. It was ridiculous. But his killers went free. He, um, meanwhile, was paralyzed. Uh, eventually, he was taken back to his home in, in Burlington, Wisconsin. And um, he died there. And that was, you know, kind of the end of his kingdom. Um, he hadn't named a successor. Um, and shortly after he was shot, his enemies raided the island in a mob and, uh, you know, forced people off at gunpoint. It was really, you know, ugly uh, country justice, as we used to call it in the Midwest. You know, people were just forced out of their homes, forced off their property and forced off the island in a very sad state. They were ve they just had the clothes on their back. Uh, they were uh, hungry and uh, the church eventually broke up and splintered. There's still some remnant of Strang's church. There are people I've met in Burlington who are still followers of his, but uh, it's obviously not a strong and powerful force in the history of the church at this point. And those Strangites make no claim to a priesthood authority or, or handed down um, sort of priesthood authority because there there wasn't someone that was sort of selected at the time or or structure within the, the, the Strangite church when James Strang was around. They sort of adhere to the principles that were taught by James Strang, but don't make any sort of godlike claims of. Similarly, I guess the uh, reorganized church or the community of Christ with Joseph Smith's son, that there was a blood lineage. And obviously we know now that that blood lineage has, has since died out. But for many years, they kind of adhered to this is how it was supposed to be. There was the claim that Joseph Smith's son would one day be the prophet and so on and so on and so on. There isn't that claim within the Strangite branch. I'm not an expert on their theology. That that sounds right to me. I don't I don't think they would consider themselves Brighamites. Right? Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't. Cer I, I cer don't think certainly not Brighamites, but even that. Yeah. I mean, so that may be something that in a future episode, as we pick up some of these folks that adhere themselves to that today yeah, to th find th out. those people should that they should speak for themselves and not have me as their um, <laughs> uninformed spokesman yeah. and, and and you know that but they you know these are serious people of faith I think. yeah and uh you know they they do they do i i don't know the numbers it's not large i mean the first time i heard about this story i happen to have a brother-in-law who i'm i'm close with who grew up in burlington in this little town quite a beautiful town you can see why uh, Strang thought it would be a great place for a colony. I, it's at the junction of these two rivers, and it, you know, it's just a gorgeous town. And we were driving around one day years ago, and I remember him pointing to some landmarks in this town and saying, you know, there was this Mormon colony here, and, you know, I grew up uh, around a lot of these people. And, I, you know, I think it just, I just remember thinking, what a weird, interesting story. I, I, I think I didn't understand that he was talking about this Strangite church, hmm. or that a separate prophet. And and then when I started researching the book, I said, "Hey, wait, this is this is the church you told me about." And he said, <laughs> "Yeah, it is. Yeah, well, yeah, it is. Yeah." I, um, so that, but but it was fun. One of the fun things about this book for me was to, oh, we we went up to Burlington and he he took me on a canoe ride into 
what's left of Strang's community. So I would see it from kind of a 19th century point of view. Interesting. That was quite fun. The uh, utopia that he tried to establish, you know, in early um, Brighamite history, we talk about things like the United Order, a law of consecration, uh, you know, where they would give everything to the church and it would sort of dole out. Some people would say that's sort of socialistic in its views. Is that what the utopia was like or what, what were... What there, were, were th- there were two, at least, well, at least I, I'd say there were three different incarnations of it. One was the Order of Illuminati, uh, in w- which I think was more based on sort of a Masonic model. And then there was the Order of Enoch, which was based on much more like you say. He asked people to give up their property and, and turn it all over to the church. Interestingly, the Order of Enoch came right as Marx and Engels are working on the Communist Manifesto. Mm-hmm. Um uh, in in this you know just sort of feverish time, and you know Strang was Strang in his newspaper talked about you know socialism is what he called it. Mm-hmm. Um, he almost certainly never read Marx and Engels, but he was kind of the zealot of uh, the fevers of the mid nineteenth century. Later, I think Beaver Island became kind of a kleptocracy. You know, I I think. Strang and his people didn't own much of the land. It was federal land. They they um, they were squatting, and you know you talked about consecration. I, I think they were using the definition that was sometimes, if we're honest, used in Nauvoo of it's okay for us to steal from the Gentiles because you know we're bringing about the second coming. This is important work. We can't mess with earthly laws. It was, I think pretty cynical on Strang's part, but, you know, a lot of the people who were out doing this work for him, some of them were just, you know, (laughs) bad people who just would have been thieves anyway. And some of them were true believers who, who just thought they were doing the Lord's work and thought it was necessary. work. What, uh, what is, has, uh, is going to, whatever tense we want to use that, uh, have become of Beaver Island? What's, what's there today, 2020? Oh, it's a, it's a beautiful island. And, you know, What's not there is much of Strang's colony. Um, they were wiped off. There's only, well, two buildings that I know of, and, and one of them is in really such rough shape. It's, it's you know, it's not even worth uh, mentioning. But what's left from Beaver Island is um, uh, place names. You know, uh, Strang and his, starting with St. James, that's the big, the only sit really town on Beaver Island, mm. and that's, St. James Strang. Then there's the King's Highway, which was the King's Highway, and it's really the only paved road. Beaver Island is a, is a stunningly beautiful place, um, and, and there are some wealthy people there, some tourists, especially in the north part of the island, but it's still, I like, when you go there, you can imagine James Strang and his colony. Most of the roads are gravel uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, um, you don't drive with your windows down on Beaver Island or, or, or the car fills up with this red dust really quickly, as uh, my family and I found out. But there's still, you know, all these landmarks are named by Strang and those were left afterwards. But there aren't Mormons on the island that I know of, um, certainly not Strang. I'd say we're all kicked off. Um, and if they've moved back, it's because they wanted to, you know, <laughs> their ancestors wanted to restake a claim. But I don't I don't know of any up there. I mean, it's but it's still like a really, a really beautiful place. And you can see why someone would want to start a colony there. It's got a great natural harbor and it's this big, impressive, gorgeous island in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) 
The name of the book is The King of Confidence, A Tale of Utopian Dreamers, Frontier Schemers, True Believers, False Prophets, and the Murder of an American Monarch. Uh, I love that someone described it as unputdownable. I'm not sure that's a word, but I really appreciate that description of this book. People can get it wherever they buy their books, and I will leave a link uh, to be able to purchase that in the show notes in association with this episode. You know, we ask everyone who comes into the cultural hall uh, a couple of questions. I'll ask one of those of you now. As far as faith goes, as you engage faith, and I don't mean necessarily in adherence to a particular religion or faith tradition, but we ask everyone who steps in here uh, what their favorite part of their faith is. And so I would pose that question to you for however you would interpret it. I am a believer. I was raised in uh, the Unitarian Church, but my parents were so Unitarian that they didn't make us go to church. So I'm not of a particular faith, um, but I guess my faith manifests itself in um, just an awe of the um, beauty and complexity and sometimes darkness of the world. Um, I, I think this is the first time I've ever said this in public. I get up every morning and I talk to a tree in front of my house in Chicago. Um, and uh, in a way, I think that tree, it's catching the light from the sunrise every morning. And it's a beautiful tree. It's a really tall tree. And I, I think that's my, my way of talking to God. It's my kind of, I just, just a, it's, I'm not a particularly, I, I, I'm, my belief is um, not uh, very specific, but um, it's strong. I love that. I love that. I mean, to have that very um, physical semblance of of a, of a, of a godlike experience daily that's pretty that's pretty awesome i appreciate that you would share that with us um as we always say at the end of these episodes we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body and that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week and that when the time comes you'll be able to travel home in safety in the meantime we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the cultural hall Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat On the back row, we really gotta go On the Culture Hall Show